Lit Service is brought to you by Writer's Clearinghouse. Writer's Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost, professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. Now here's the show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and my favorite food that I force everyone to try is broccoli with ketchup. What? That's gross. It's amazing. You heathen. All right. <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. My name is Caitlin, and I make everyone try Taiwanese manto steam bread. So good. Mmm. So this isn't necessarily like my favorite thing ever, but I get so many weird looks every time I bring it up that I definitely try to make people try pizza with potatoes on it. Like, to be clear, I'm not talking like baked potatoes or mashed potatoes. They're like borderline hash browns. But I think they're pretty great. I'm Kristen, and I make everyone try pupusas. I'm Emily, and I make everybody try poutine. It's mm. a French, like Canadian dish with French fries and cheese curds and you drizzle hot gravy over it. At Station 22, there's really they good poutine. They have poutine there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That sounds amazing. It's good. Well, we will definitely have to try this. We'll have to have a food time next podcast. <laughs> but for this episode, we have special guest Emily R. King, the author of the 100th Queen series and the forthcoming Before the Broken Star. Uh, tell us about your new book, Emily. It's about a girl with a clock heart who is hunting down the man who killed her parents and stabbed her through the chest as a child before she runs out of borrowed time. I love how offhand she is. She just got stabbed through the chest as a child. (laughs) So is is she still among the living or is this an undead scenario? She has a clock heart. That's why she's alive. Oh, so intriguing. That is dope. Very, very neat. And thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, fantastic. To get us started today, a lot of people go to novels, especially in the genres we write, young dull and science fiction fantasy, to escape and to be entertained. How do you incorporate ideas that matter to you without being preachy? I just like to say, first off, that most of us who write, you can't really escape putting your worldview and your thoughts and whatever else into your writing. I mean, most people are intentionally giving their characters specific worldviews and thoughts, but whatever it is that you believe about the world, it's going to be in there because you can't really escape it. Because that's that's how you see things in the world. Well, I totally agree. And I think a big part of the the reasons people escape, a reason people escape might be because their their family's having trouble or they escape to go to a place where those problems aren't there. And a lot of times that comes from characters who are making better choices than maybe the people around them are or from different perspectives than they're surrounded with. So it, they're definitely hard and fast rules in escapist fiction, but they're just different. I don't know if that made any sense. I don't know if they're hard and fast rules in escapist fiction. I feel like as long as you approach it the right way, it's easy to put stuff into a book. I mean, that's why we wanted to talk about this with Emily because Emily is, we were just talking about this the other day, feminism is her brand. Um, <laughs> but I mean, but they're enjoyable and escapist and wonderful books that are all also quite feminist. I mean, just as I was thinking about it, my idea was that if you are not trying to, in the words of the world we live in right now, thrust something at your readers, like maybe you think calzones are the best thing to eat in the entire world, and that's your plot, is somebody going around and like forcing people to eat calzones. That doesn't really work. I've been watching Parks and Rec, guys. Um, (laughs) But if it's a theme that Italian food makes the world a better place, I mean, you can get away with that for sure. 
I think it's really important to realize that there are politics in every single art. And I think that there's a difference between expressing yourself so that the reader can decide what they think about a certain idea than shoving it down their throat. Preaching is something that you are going to see in the manuscript and it's going to overwhelm you and you're going to probably stop listening and maybe teaching kind of what you feel. You leave the reader up to decide and it's more felt than anything. You give a scenario and they get to decide whether it's right or wrong. And it might be clear in your execution what you think about it, but it really should be up to your reader to decide what they think about that. You shouldn't be having to teach them really what they what they should believe. They should kind of already know that. Not treating your reader like an idiot is key, right? And giving them the room to figure out what they think. There is a bit at the end of Sanderson's Words of Radiance that I thought was kind of profound. Um, one of the characters just kind of muses that the the storyteller's job is to give the reader ideas to think about and not what they should think. That kind of defines my view on all things didactic. Mm-hmm. So I was talking with Terrell Young, who was on the, the Newberry Committee for 2019, and he was talking about how, to him, I guess a book is either a mirror or a window. And I really like that just because it's giving you something to look at rather than, I don't know, telling you what to see. The way to write about something you really care about is to let other people make up their mind about whether or not they care about it too. You present the facts as you see them and then let them make the decision. Agreed. No one likes to feel forced. And I know personally when when I was growing up, if my mom tried to force me to see something a certain way, I would intentionally not see things that way. So (laughs) I like what you were saying about letting people feel and letting people choose for themselves. And if you write the topic clearly enough, then they should be able to, to see the problems with what's going on. Which kind of leads us into our next question. What if it is an issue, not a theme, that you want to explore in your book? One of my favorite issue books is The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, which I think it is a window, like you're talking about. It's definitely a window. It's not subtle what the issue issue is that she's talking about, but it's definitely, it's not an issue disguised as a story either. It's a story where the issue matters very much to the main character and it directly impacts her life. And it's a book that has purpose and viewpoint, but it makes sense in the context of the story. So it's not shoving an issue down your throat. It's giving you a window into why this is an interesting, difficult issue. And actually she gives more than one viewpoint. It's about, um, a girl whose friend is shot by the police. And you have the main character who has an uncle who is a policeman, and then she lives in this neighborhood that has bad black people and good black people, and there's good white people and bad white people, and it's not like a linear, here's the issue and here's exactly what you should think about it, which is kind of what we've been talking about. Accuracy is so important when you're portraying an issue in your story, because as the author, you have kind of complete control of this world, so you can make the circumstances have any outcome you want them to but people are going to sense if that outcome is false. But if you are able to just present the issue and then highlight some of the real consequences that controversial issues can have, people are then able to make up their minds for themselves because sometimes consequences get minimized in real life, but in a story you have that ability to shine a light on them. Which is kind of playing towards even like what the novel's strength is in the first place, right? Let the political speech be very abrupt, direct, didactic, telling you exactly what you should think and why. In a novel, you have the space to build a character where you can show the issue rather than just telling it. Mm-hmm. So do that. <laughs> a lot of the way that these issues are presented to us in the media are very black and white. And as a creator, you have room to be a bit more gray in some things and create more nuance or at least have the ability to show that nuance. That's what really makes a compelling book, a book that argues both sides 
of the issue, not just one. We were just talking with Kelly Barnhill about this a little bit. She talks about how a lot of issues, both sides are right according to their life and their perspective and their experiences. And the way things are presented in a political or news situation is there isn't room for nuance because they're talking to a specific audience and they're talking in very abbreviated chunks. But if you have a chance to show more of what is going on, that's your job as a creator. And you, you can't understand someone's opposing viewpoint if you can't see it through their eyes. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. that's how they're understanding it. Mm -hmm. That's a really good transition to the next topic we wanted to kind of brush on. The typical advice people give to aspiring authors is write what you know. In this situation, do you think this is good or bad advice? Okay, so obviously in some situations this is really bad advice because I have never been a dragon writer and so if I I'm trying to write, I wouldn't be able to write a book about like a dragon writer if I obviously haven't done something like that. But I think the heart of it is something that is actually a really good bit of advice. I had a creative writing class where the first thing that my teacher said to us was fall in love with the world and take notes. And I think that having a really good way of observing the people and the places and the emotions around you will prepare you to include them in a book and make whatever you're writing about feel and be real. even if it's on the far reaches of speculative fiction, you can still get real things that you know in there and it's going to make the book a weightier thing. That's a great answer. And I think it ties back with what Caitlin said earlier about seeing things through other people's eyes. That is something you can know. And so you can learn about love and excitement and then that's what a dragon rider would feel. So I love that. <laughs> I think with issues though, a lot of times, there are some kinds of issues that it's not appropriate for you to write yeah. about. Like if you don't have firsthand experience like I am a, I'm not supposed to say Mormon, but I, I mean, that's my life experience. That's what I've grown up with and I know the doctrine and I know what I believe. And so watching people represent it from the outside is actually something that's quite jarring to me because I know how I feel about what I believe and I know what other people think about what I believe and oftentimes it's misrepresented. It's not because people are trying to be malicious, it's just because they don't have the context, they don't have the life of experiences behind it. And there are issues that people face that I feel like you need that lifetime of experiences behind it in order to legitimately represent that viewpoint in literature. Agreed. So we're about out of time for this section of the podcast. We have an exciting submission to critique today. Quick review, we try to keep this critique non-prescriptive. And if you'd like to check out the text of this submission and see all of our notes, check on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. So in this submission, a young alchemist crafts a spy pigeon for a client on the black market, then has to browbeat the client's men into paying the full promised price. So what are some things we liked? I loved the first line. So good. I, the whole opening of the submission just brought me so much joy when I opened it and read it because it gave me a lot of questions, it gave me answers, and then the addition of like this talking mechanical dragon, it was it was fantastic. Does anyone have that first line pulled yeah, up? Just yeah, I can get it. Sorry. It was on a foggy evening in late April in the cellar of a pawnbroker shop that Zaria Mendoza created life for the 23rd time. Ooh, such good vibes right there. I love the descriptions of machinery throughout this. I thought they were clear enough to make them sound believable, but not too mechanical that I got bogged down in them. So I really enjoyed that. I loved all the world building. The world building in the submission was like masterfully done. It's just little bite-sized pieces 
that are digestible and put in context very quickly. But I loved that she says that alchemy is illegal, but bought and sold on the black market, but it's satanic in South America, which is why her father left for London. And it's all this stuff that's given just in in the context of the story, and there's no info dumping. Agreed. I think there was a lot of really great voicey character revealing stuff in mm-hmm. here. The the line she approaches human beings the way the same way she approached alcohol, I thought was lovely. Just awesome. I think I really liked how proactive and I guess confident the main character is. It I, I think she did it really well. There's a line, if you hear screaming, I promise it won't be coming from me, which I really enjoyed. I also really like that we kind of had a, have a setup of some growth that needs to happen mm-hmm. because we know from the beginning that she's learned all of the basics of this alchemy from her father, but the dragon, she has this little snarky dragon familiar who's super fun, who says, you haven't learned how to create something like me that can talk. And so we know that she does not have command of everything. And we know that there's like some family weirdness going on. It's kind of just like a really great example of scene composition where you have what she can do right next to where she could be. If we want to go ahead and move on to some things that might need a second look, Emily, you said you had a note? Oh, just using it quite frequently. I would describe it as often as possible, especially within the first line. You only have so many words in that line, and to start a book with it is something you don't see very often because everyone wants to know what it is. So you can rearrange your sentences that you're explaining what that is. Can I say something more that I liked real quick? I think the pacing was really spot on. There was no point where I felt like I was bored with what was happening. However, I do think that there are a couple times that maybe a little bit more nuance with the character would have been appreciated. She was very arrogant, which I I think that's her character and I liked that, Mm -hmm. but I'm not quite certain what she is afraid of, if she's not afraid of meeting with black market guys, or why if she isn't afraid of them, what is worth it? other than money or why she needs the money for her to put herself in that situation where she mm. she would compromise herself. I feel like I just need a just like even just a couple lines more explaining maybe a little bit more insight into her character, a hesitance, a little bit of a fear, something that made her feel almost not mechanical, ironically, <laughs> where she's more human, where I could relate to her as a human. It's kind of missing a, a driving why. What? Mm-hmm. There's plenty of reasons to be in a situation to be doing what she's doing, but what is it about her that makes it so that she's doing these things? Right. Mm-hmm. I know Caitlin and I both wondered about why there was so much tension when the main character hides the little pigeon, because Jules is the person who's interrupting, and she knows that it's her friend, and she still acts like she has to hide it from him. I guess I was confused there as to why she was so worried when she'd already been warned that it was a person who Already knew her big secret. Yep. At one point, we find out that the main character has a mechanical arm. I thought that was super cool. I did feel like I wanted to know about that earlier on in the submission, just because that seems like that'd be a very big part of life. I actually kind of feel like that, but I also kind of like that it was just slipped in because I, mm-hmm. if she's had it for a really long time, then she's not gonna notice it, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as somebody else comes in the room and is like, oh, there's, I mean, she sees them look at her arm. I have definitely had that experience before, not because I have a mechanical arm, but because I've had days where I had mud on my face or something. Something, you know, where I feel like when she's by herself, she's not necessarily going to notice it right. because she's had it for a long time. So I don't know how I feel about that. It could mm. go either way, I guess. For me. I agree with that. I actually really like that perspective. I think it was just a little bit jarring for me because then I had to repicture how I was imagining mm-hmm. her. Yeah. But that makes a lot of sense. I wasn't sure how I felt about Jules asking her a bunch of questions before she goes to meet these guys. A lot of it's to reveal that she does not care and is not worried about meeting these potentially dangerous people. But he keeps asking, you know, are you gonna be okay in there? Are you sure you're gonna be okay in there? And then later on, 
she says, he's just asking to be nice and he knows I can take care of myself. So I wasn't sure if this was a case of an unreliable narrator who doesn't realize that this guy is actually worried about her or if it's being shown one thing and then being told something completely different. So if it's intentional, then that's awesome. I'm excited to see that unfold somewhere else someday when this book is published. If it's not intentional, then that might be something to look at. So in general, I really like the world building. I just There were a couple of snares that I think would be pretty easy to fix. I just wanted to mention them. I didn't quite buy the setup and flow of the bartering bit. Maybe this is just me, but I thought for something that's illegal and expensive and custom made for someone that like maybe like a half down in advance would have made a lot more sense then I'm gonna spend weeks making this thing and you may or may not pay for it at the end. There's just some opportunities to display competence on her part for her to, to have taken more measures to protect herself in case things go south. And then kind of along the same vein, I have trouble taking seriously the capitalized black market since in, since we know this is historical fiction, like in our world, the black market just kind of refers to everything, all trading that's done illegally. I just kind of want like either a lampshade as to why is this the black market or maybe like a name that's more informative or you disagree. I want to cut in with a cool historical fact because okay, the black market we... did in fact refer to a specific commodity at one point. The really? name comes from graphite smugglers. Oh. That which... is beautiful and amazing. Yeah, so but unfortunately can... does not refer to clockwork. Well, we don't know. So I'm saying that there could be there could be a real reason that this is referred to as the black market and I didn't have a problem with it. So I feel I went it. to the Derwent Pencil Museum. So. <laughs> so I feel it. So let me let me throw in the addition that even if everything I have just said about the black market is completely historically false, most of your readers, if they have an opinion, they are going to have my opinion. So it'd probably be good to explain why it doesn't meet their expectation. And then very small, I did want to know. So obviously we're not going to do this in South America because it's considered satanic. So we're going to do it in Britain where it's still illegal. I wanted to know why it's illegal in Britain. That's a question that I had, but I was okay I waiting wait. for the answer. Oh, yeah. I wanted, to know. I wanted to know why illegal in Britain was better than satanic in South America. Imagine one is jail and one is burning. I think, yeah. but... <laughs> well, you know, it depends. Yeah, you know, <laughs> so it I, does. I, I wanted to know. Maybe part of that was we, as we discussed earlier, we weren't quite sure what this character's driving why was. And so maybe having like that kind of information would help us. Overall, I was really impressed with the submission. I was, I honestly wanted to read more. I wanted to see what happened and see if she was as cocky as she came off in the first chapter, if she was about to really have the rugs pulled out from under her. And if that's where the character's leading, if that's what's happening, is that she's too cocky and gets herself into trouble, I would stay and watch that. I would want to read that and see what happened. So I thought it was really well done. Me too. This was a really, really good submission. I loved it. Yeah, this has been one of my favorite ones to read and can't wait until it's a real book yeah. and I get to finish it. <laughs> so wonderful. Thank you, Emily, for coming on the show. Thank you Love for having me. Mm -hmm. Don't forget to check out her new book, Before the Broken Star, when it comes out June 1st. If you'd like a first chapter critique from the podcast, you can find our submission guidelines on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. Remember, you can watch the video feed of this recording on YouTube or you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us ratings, reviews, and comments. It helps others to find the show. If you like us, please share the show with your friends. If you want to ask us questions or tell us we're awesome, you can find us on Twitter at LitService or on Facebook and Instagram at LitService Podcast, or you can email us at LitServicePodcast at gmail.com. LitService is brought to you by Writers Clearinghouse. Writers Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of LitService will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LitService20 at purchase. For Lit Service, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Special thanks to Jason Akinaka and Neil Oler for our video and sound design.